In this episode of Startups for the Rest of Us, Mike and I talk about minimum viable security, moving on from Audit Shark, and answer more listener questions. This is Startups for the Rest of Us, episode 405. Welcome to Startups for the Rest of Us, the podcast that helps developers, designers, and entrepreneurs be awesome at building, launching, and growing software products. Whether you've built your first product or you're just thinking about it. I'm Rob. And I'm officially the answer to the ultimate question of life, the universe, and everything. 42. Yes. Did you just turn 42? Yep. Congratulations, man. Happy birthday. Yeah, I finally made it. It's like my kids, I keep telling them, like, oh, if only you'll make it to 10 or 11 or 12. <laughs> you finally made it to the answer. You know, I did. I can't believe I didn't even uh, think about that when I was 42. Ooh, people get to guess now how old I am. It's fun. I know. Oh, we were screwing up the intro. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and we're here to share our experiences to help you avoid the same mistakes we made. So we're this week, sir, aside from uh, happy birthday wishes to you. Well, I was on the uh, Indie Hackers podcast, I think about a week and a half ago. That was with Cortland Allen. And then I was also on the Release Notes podcast with Charles Perry. So there's uh, actually two episodes of that. They split it up into part one and part two. And I think that part two will be live by the time this episode goes out. But yeah, both of them were a lot of fun. I've got a lot of uh, feedback from both the Indie Hackers podcast and then through the Indie Hackers forums and then over Twitter. So it's nice to see that the stuff I was talking about was resonating with people in terms of kind of like my journey and path and things with blue tick and how that was validated and how audit shark went off the rails and everything else. That's cool. I heard the release notes episode. It actually came up in a, a Google alert. I think I have it on like founder. I have a Google alert on maybe founder cafe or maybe startups for the rest of us or something. And so it, it came up because it was in the show notes. And so I, I picked up the episode. It's always fun. I actually enjoy hearing you on other podcasts because they ask you questions that like we never cover on this show, you know? And so I learned something. I'm like, oh, I didn't know he did that. You know, that you talked about your your past. And then even just hearing kind of, you know, your retelling of the story of, of Autotrack and Blue Tick and stuff was uh, was kind of fun. So I enjoyed it. We're going to link up both of those episodes in this week's show notes, episode 405. Aside from that, I've started working on a uh, public API for Bluetick. I knew that I wanted to do it at some point, but the entire application itself is a single-page application, so everything's driven off of an API. But in the process of building the app and creating that API, I found all these things that are just, I'll say, are not probably done in the best of ways. So it's nice to have like version two is the API that will be public versus version one, which was for internal use only. <laughs> Yeah, I was going to say that. Obviously, be sure to have a slash V1 or V2 when you publish it because you're going to need to update it at some point and you don't want to break retroactively. The other thing is have rate limiting in from the start because by the time you get to the point where you need it, it's, it's, not, it's not good to have somebody take your API down. I would also, this is all just from experience, I would also, if possible, put the API on a separate server or separate bank of servers because someone, if someone takes your API down, you don't want your main app to go down. And what else? I'm I bet there's like four. These are totally off the top of my head. I hadn't, had not pre-planned these. But yeah, there's really, there's really good ways to do APIs at this point. I remember, again, you know, dating myself back 10 or 12 years ago, all the APIs were different. REST was not a thing. It was all post-APIs. I mean, it was really janky. And I guess there were what? Web it was like web service, right? It was XML. Remember, it was all XML, which was just... Yeah, Microsoft came out with this thing as WizDeal. WizDeal. Oh, there was SOAP before. It was WizDeal, SOAP, all that crap. I mean, it was it was terrible. And, you know, you'll still see some old APIs use that, but it 
REST APIs now are so clean. You know, a lot of them are stateless. I don't know. There, there's there's these best practices that people use that I would I would really try to implement because they definitely makes a cleaner experience for everyone. So I use Swagger to document the API and it kind of hooks in. And so like if I make any changes to the API, like I've got a document that basically says how it works. So that's an easy enough thing to incorporate into the public API. But the other nice thing that I found is that there are utilities out there that you can use to to query your Swagger documentation, and then it will build libraries for you in various languages. So Python, C Sharp, and various other things. It'll just create a library for you, and then you can make it available to people so that if they want to hook it directly into their application, they've got the code to do it, and they don't have to write all of the wrapper stuff that goes with it, which is kind of awesome. Yeah. Assuming that works well, that is awesome. Really, really cool. I know that with Drip early on, obviously we released a Ruby wrapper because Drip was written in Rails, or it was a Ruby gem, right? Because Drip was written in in Ruby. And then we had some third parties build like an open, someone built an open source Python one, I believe. And there were someone built a .NET one. And they just, I think they just kind of open sourced it and we linked out to it, which was cool, especially in the early days. It did kind of stink as we got further on because they weren't actively maintaining it because they had built it for themselves and implemented it. And then as we added more, you know, we added more to the API later on, a bunch more methods, they didn't implement them. So then people would email us and be like, hey, you need to add this. And it's like, we don't even own the code base, you know, so, and we didn't have any .NET developers uh, on staff. So there's different things. It was never, wrappers are always, everybody always wants a wrapper in every language and you just can't do it. And it's just not feasible. But if you were able to, to roll out kind of the top two or three most common ones and then be able to maintain them, that would be a big, a big deal. Yeah. I don't, I don't know how many people are going to be kind of hooking into it, but I have talked to other people who like run apps like SaaS apps and they're interested in hooking into BlueTick. And the question is like, well, how do I make this available for them? And how do I make it available as a public API for customers? And do I even, do I have like separate endpoints for each of them? I'm not entirely sure on that yet, but I suspect that it'd probably be easier to maintain if I just had one public API and that was it, regardless of whether you're integrating directly or not. That's what I would, well, I would tend to do that. Although what we, so we had the public API and anyone could consume it. If we wanted, like when lead pages wanted to integrate with us or like if it was an official integration that we were both going to promote and it was going to be on our integrations page, we typically forked off a separate endpoint so that we could handle that differently because sometimes with that one, we wanted to give it a higher uh, rate limit or we wanted to route the traffic slightly differently based on what it was. And if it was coming through the public API, we didn't know. So that is one thing to think about. Now, in the end, we had 35, 40 integrations. We did not have a full, you know, 40 different endpoints, but I do think we had, you know, a handful for especially the, the most popular ones. Right. I could see having like like a third party integration API, like a dedicated endpoint for that. And then for certain ones, you say, OK, we're going to kind of fork this code and give it additional functionality or put it on a different server because it, it justifies having like higher rate limits just because of the data going back. And you kind of trust them to send you things in a normal fashion versus if you just had that public endpoint, who knows what they could be doing or sending or most of those are going to be like for regular customers versus somebody who is sending stuff over on behalf of a lot of customers. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. And here's something to think about as well. For some reason, segment.com, at least last I heard when I was still at Drip, they don't honor rate limits. 
they just never implemented it. And they said that they were working on it, but they would DDoS us about every two months or three months. They would take the API pretty much down and we would be like frantically emailing them because we would return a 403, I believe, which is you're over your rate limit, please stop sending. And there's a bunch of stuff in the response code. You say, you, know, you say you have to wait 57 minutes before you can send another whatever. So Zapier as an example has a rate limit. And when we would go out and webhook into Zapier, we would read that response and then we'd throw it into a queue for 57 minutes later. And we, it would say you can have up to a thousand per hour. So, you know, you could just read the response and it would allow us to rate limit stuff out. Segment never bothered to build that. And so someone would come in with, I don't know, a half a million uniques a day and they would be pumping everything into segment. And then they just click the checkbox of like, yes, stuff everything into drip all of a sudden. And it would just be like, boom. So be aware of that. And again, we talked with segment quite a bit about it. And they're like, we're working on this. We're working on this. This is a problem for other folks too. But at one point we for like a couple hours, we had to like block all of Segment's IPs. It was crazy, like at the firewall, you know, and and then they they would get it turned off. So just be aware, it, it's not going to happen day one, but it will happen eventually, you know. Yeah, I don't, I don't know. It may happen day one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a thing, right? You never know. Yeah, I mean, I've seen just because of the, the volume of data that Bluetick handles on the back end because it's a mailbox. I mean, when I split things off onto two servers, part of the reason I ended up having to do two servers was because when I got a new sign up, if they had a large mailbox, the first thing it does is it kind of indexes everything. So right there, just like adding a new customer, we would basically DDoS the entire application. So depends on how large they were. So I added a bunch of code to back things off a little bit and do like internal rate limiting on how much calculations and stuff it does and how quickly it does stuff. And then I also, I even added code that would monitor the process that was currently running and then throttle it up and down in terms of the CPU usage which was kind of crazy because it works across the entire process. You can't do that on a per thread basis in Windows. So I don't know. I considered moving it off into its own separate process, but that would involve a different service. And I was just like, yeah, I'll just, I'll put it on a different server and then I won't have to worry about it. And then that was kind of the solution I ended up with. Yeah, that makes sense. Something else to consider is we set, in the early days, we set the rate limit pretty low, knowing you can always increase it, but decreasing it later is going to, not going to go well. So we set it low. And when people come in and say, I need to import, you know, 100,000 subscribers and your rate limit is going to take me two days to do it. So we'd say, okay, we're going to build a bulk endpoint for you. So then we'd build a, a public endpoint that was, instead of ad subscriber, it was bulk ad subscribers. And you could send up to X amount, I think it was a thousand per payload, a thousand subscribers. And it was still the same amount of submissions. It was still rate limited at that. But you could then send a thousand instead of just one. So we built several bulk endpoints, both in and I believe out, as the troubleshooting. It wasn't just this is one of those things where customers say, "No, I need a higher rate limit," and it's like, "What do you actually need?" Well, what I actually need to do is import hundred thousand people. Oh, well, there's a better solution than increasing the rate limit across the board for all thirty thousand people, you know, or whatever who use this app because that could be catastrophic for the thing. So we did. To do that. So it's just something to think about. You know, it's product decisions, but it's there's more, there's often more elegant ways to do things than just what the customer is asking for. Yeah. I mean, and that's, I like to have early conversations with pretty much every customer that comes on to BlueTick just because I want to know what it is that you're actually trying to do. So, like yesterday, I had a call with somebody who signed up and I was trying to figure out what it was they were trying to do. They're in the fashion industry and they have all these like samples and stuff of people that they have to, like manufacturers and vendors that they have to follow up with and they ask for samples. And then if they don't get them or they don't hear back, they have to follow up with them. And it was just, it was very interesting hearing. Uh, the, the 
conversation about like exactly the specifics of the problem that they were trying to solve. And, I, you know, ultimately we kind of, we kind of concluded that the volume isn't high enough right now to kind of justify using blue tick. But once it starts scaling up, which they kind of expect that to happen, then, you know, blue tick is really going to be helpful for them. So on my end, um, as you know, I recently moved and we were in California for two weeks and then we, we flew in and landed at midnight on a Wednesday and we closed on the house on Friday. And so when we were in California, I really wasn't thinking much about the house closing. All the stuff was, was in flight and there wasn't much work to do on it. So when we get back, I'm like, I need to start changing our address, you know? So Thursday and Friday, as we're about to get the keys, I start changing the address, I start moving utilities, I start doing all that. And I, I forget that for internet access, A, how critical it is, right? I mean, it is perhaps more important than <laughs> a lot of other things. Yeah, I was going well, to say <laughs> than electricity, but it, it's really not because you need both. But I mean, it is as important to me as having electricity, obviously, right? It's like, it was, it was crazy to not have it. So I called for, what I forget is that cable internet and DSL are often they can turn it on same day, you know, or they overnight you the equipment and you get it the next day. And that's what I was thinking. But of course, we have fiber here. Uh, we're the luxury of having gigabit fiber. There's two companies that offer it in the neighborhood. So it's true, you know, really cool. So I call them up and they're like, yeah, we can get to you in 11 days. And then the other one said, we have to trench and it's going to, you know, not trench, but put pipe under the, the ground. So it's going to take uh, 30 days. And I was like, no, this is catastrophic because we're we've been spoiled by having this fiber at the other house. So I set up the appointment. The 30-day fiber is a local company called US Internet and super fast. And it's like 70 bucks for gig up and down. And they are at the street, but it'll take them about a month to get in. But I signed up for cable just for, I'm going to basically have it for a month, you know, and I had them overnight the equipment. So within like, let's say 36, 48 hours of moving in, we had real internet and but it's it is cable which is crazy it used to that used to be blazing fast and now it feels i think sherry and i are both on you know if we're both on video calls and the kids are streaming like you know you start to have issues so it's funny how quickly you get spoiled by having gigabit which you kind of never i will say we never maxed it out you know <laughs> yep so the moral of the story is a couple things if you're moving and you only need dsl or cable you know you could probably just give them a few days notice uh, assuming it's already wired in but if you're going to do something like fiber this is a reminder to myself to be like, yeah, you want to give somebody a few weeks because that may not actually be wired to all the houses. So do we want to answer some listener questions today? Let's get to it. All right. So our first question comes from Nick Malcolm, and he recorded a, uh, an audio question. And so he went straight to the top of the pile, as they always do. So voicemails to us or emailing us with uh, an MP3 or M4A get you to the top of the stack. So let's listen to that audio here. Kia ora, Mike and Rob. I'm a long-time listener from New Zealand. I've been involved in startups in the past in technical roles, but now I work as a consultant helping companies do better at security. I work alongside development teams doing things like threat modeling and teaching about common risks like the OWASP top 10 and also at an organizational level with processes and policies and risk management. I'd be really interested to hear your thoughts on what minimum viable security should look like for startups and how this might change as a company grows. Thank you for everything you both give to the startup community. It's much appreciated. Thanks. 
I, I think the trouble with security or, or kind of trying to address the problem of uh, minimal viable security in a startup is that it, it kind of competes with the aims of the business, especially when you're first starting out. So there's a there's pre-profitability and then post-profitability. So if you're talking about pre-profitability, you kind of need to do at least the very minimum basics, such as like making sure that the code that you're writing is, if it's proprietary code, you're not going to be releasing it. Just make sure that it's in a, a secure repository someplace and it's not like a public repo. But obviously, like if it's open source, then that kind of stuff doesn't matter. In terms of the servers and infrastructure, like for a startup, it so depends on what the startup is doing, how their infrastructure is configured, and the, I'll say, knowledge of security that the people who are building it have. So if you're the type of person who is like, oh, let me handle all these edge cases and make sure that I'm, I'm doing the right things, then that's that's fine. But if you're not, then you just have to be aware that those things are probably going to need to be dealt with at some point down the road. And maybe not today, but like you have to do a good job of being diligent about marking where your code could potentially be exploited or places where things could go sideways, whether it's you know, like a cross-site scripting attacks or the things going into the query string and the API being used for things that it really shouldn't be. Beyond that, like you can go so far into the weeds that it's just not even funny and security companies make their living basically sort of being ambulance chasers to start with. So if somebody has a security breach, they suddenly come out with all these articles about, hey, you know, you have to be careful of this too. And this just happened to this person because it's scare tactics. That's really what they're trying to sell on. But in terms of the basics, making sure that if you're using passwords, make sure they're one-way encrypted, make sure that anything that is sensitive is being encrypted inside of the database. So those are the types of things that you want to at least pay minimum attention to. Beyond that, like if you're running Windows, obviously you probably want to be running antivirus software of some kind on each of the machines in the environment. But as I said, you can go so far into the weeds like putting data loss prevention things on your phones or laptops or all this other stuff. Like you don't need to go that far in most cases, I don't think, unless you are a security company selling security software, in which case being hacked would obviously be the worst thing in the world for you. Beyond that, like just do what you need to do in order to protect the customer's data, making sure information does not bleed from one customer over to another. Like that's a, a pretty basic thing. But sometimes it can go wrong if you're not careful about how you're doing database queries or bucketing data between customers. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, it's, this is the kind of stuff that you have to worry about just enough and not, a, not any more than that because it will slow your business down. It'll slow building features down, but you have to pay attention to it as you go. I like to, these days, when I think of minimum viable security for startup, I think of like starting with a language that kind of has that built in or a framework that does. I know that Rails has a bunch of stuff that it validates the incoming request streams and it'll pull out cross-site scripting and SQL injection and all this stuff. And, you know, that's a good place to start. And then using, like if you use Azure or you use EC2 or Google Cloud, like there's a lot of security best practices built into there. Nick, who sent the question, included... It looks like three blog posts that we will link up in the show notes, as well as a SaaS CTO security checklist. Again, this is stuff that you just you do it just enough to where you feel comfortable. It's like GDPR. You know, do you implement the full blown thing and pay ten thousand dollars to hire a lawyer, or do you pay someone five hundred bucks and then be be mostly compliant? The the TLDR that that Nick sent over is like use version control, have logging and monitoring, and uh, continuous integration. You know, so that you're constantly running unit tests. And I think you should have some unit tests that are testing security and making sure that that things are not going to you know, be easily hacked or whatever. So 
so hopefully those thoughts are helpful. I mean, I realize it's kind of an, it depends and it's definitely always a, there's a continuum when you're doing these things, but it's also like, it's similar to the question, you know, how much should I worry about the legalities, you know, all the, all the legal stuff surrounding, you know, getting my LLC set up and, and getting everything trademarked and getting all that. And it's like, well, you should worry about it just enough, you know, and it depends on your risk tolerance and in all honesty. So thanks for the question, Nick. I think that was a, that was a good one. Next, we have a comment about moving on from Audit Shark. He says, hey guys, I've been listening for a while now and over two years ago, I started an app part-time. Finally, after all this time and all the money I sunk into it, I've decided to let it go. There were a number of reasons it failed, most important being that I've never launched my own product before and didn't fully understand what it took. Listening to Mike's decision to move on from Audit Shark, which we have an episode called Moving On From Audit Shark, it's probably... 150, 200 episodes ago. He said, it's given me the confidence to know this is the right decision. I felt his pain in the episode as it's the same pain I'm going through now. I've decided to do the stair-step approach and practice learning simpler products like an ebook or video course. Hopefully this will both give me the confidence and an audience when I'm ready to launch another product. It still hurts and I still think what if all the time, but I know I'm making the right decision. Love the show and congrats on 400. So thanks for writing in, Greg. I was, it's always good to hear from, from folks who are experienced things. I mean, we, we talk about, you know, trying to help people avoid the same mistakes we've made. Sometimes you're going to make the same mistakes we make, but maybe knowing that we made them, there's some solidarity in knowing, oh, you know, other people make them too, and, and kind of we've all been there. So I think the sting will go away over time. I mean, Mike, from your perspective, you know, you, you went through it, and now you're in the middle of audit chart building something that's obviously starting to get some traction. You know, how, what are your thoughts on this? Blue tech. Not audit, I'm not in the middle of audit chart anymore. <laughs> <It's just> blue <laughs> tech. <laughs> Freudian slip. That's funny. Yeah. What, uh, what do you think? Well, I mean, I, 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 I definitely get how you can think what if all the time. I really don't. It doesn't. AutoShark would not have been a good fit for me long term. And I didn't realize that when I started out. I didn't realize it until I was probably like very close to the end. But it didn't fit me as a founder. And it wasn't the type of business that I probably would have wanted to own long term. I mean, I looked at it from a more of a financial perspective of like, oh, I really want to be able to sell this and and make a lot of money from it. And it, I enjoyed the problem space itself, but I did not enjoy trying to sell that type of a product versus Bluetech where I actually do because I feel like it's it's legitimately helping people that need that help. And with Audit Shark, it was more I'll say it was more about like meeting a checkbox requirement for people and nobody actually cared about it. It was just they like, oh, our company says we have to do this, so we'll do it. Yep. So that makes sense. And I, I think early on, you probably thought, what if a bit? And then you kind of move past it, right? As they, That's the healing process of letting something like this go. Yep, definitely. Cool. Our next question slash comment is a comment on episode 403. So go to startupsfortherestofus.com if you ever want to leave a comment, read all your comments. And Doug said, first of all, where do you find the time to play D&D? And uh, <laughs> I think it's funny. So from my perspective, I, I'm trying to think. I got back into it. Let's see, my kid is 12. And I think I taught him when he was maybe eight. And so it's been about four years. So yeah, drip was going on. And frankly, we don't play D&D very much. I mean, we do more now that I'm not not working on drip anymore. But when I was growing drip, we would maybe play every few months. So it really was not, you know, uh, an ongoing campaign thing. But it's definitely gotten easier for me to, to carve out the time. And I think if we had a recurring, like a recurring campaign that was with other people, you just kind of find the time, right? If it's every week or twice a month on a Thursday at seven, and you know that you're going to let people down if you don't show up, 
that would be something. The other thing for me is we keep our sessions pretty short. So they're typically 60 to 90 minutes. They're not these, you know, four hour campaigns and we enjoy it that way. But how about you, Mike? How do you find the time? So I have two different ones running. One is with a friend of mine and uh, our kids kind of collectively. And that we've run very sporadically. So like we might meet like once in a month or once every two or three months. So that's been going on for probably close to two years at this point. And then the other one that I just started up, I think we've had three sessions so far, but it's every Tuesday night. So we meet up at like 730. Last night, two nights ago, we had a rather lengthy one and it went until like 1230. So it was almost one o'clock in the morning by the time I got home, but it was like 7.30 to 12.30. So that, that was kind of the ballpark thing. But I mean, we're, we're shooting for that. We're shooting for like probably two to three hours. Three hours is kind of like the minimum that we want. But and then after that, it's like kind of wherever there's a decent stopping point and that session just happened to be longer. But I, th- I agree with you. I think that having a set time of the uh, of the day each week or every couple of weeks that you're shooting for that's kind of the best way to go just because it you're making a commitment to other people to be there and show up so that i think that's really helpful well and here's the thing when i was doing this on nights and weekends when i was doing startups on nights and weekends and had a day job i didn't play any of this right i mean there were years where i didn't go to happy hour with friends when they would go i didn't play any type of tabletop games because I worked all day and then I worked all night. My kids were either not born yet or they were really young. So they would go to sleep at seven and then I would just work till one in the morning. I mean, I was tired, but that was the, that was the slog, right? And, and you and I have both moved into the position. Uh, once I'm working on it full time during the day and I'm putting in my seven to nine hours a day of startup work, then in the evenings, I actually like to, you know, not continue to do that. And so it depends on the phase you're in. If you, if you, are still working nights and weekends, I would say don't get involved. Like don't have a hobby. I mean, it's crazy advice, but like that's, I really put all my hobbies on hold while I was getting that initial traction for, it was, it was definitely a couple years. Um, and it was, what was, it was even more than that. Actually, it was probably over the span of about five or six years, but it wasn't constantly, I would tackle a project, work on it for six months and I wasn't doing anything nights and weekends. And yeah, it kind of sucked, but I had that goal. You know, I wanted to get that financial freedom. I wanted to get out of the day job. And then it would crash and burn, and then I'd be all dejected, disappointed, and I would go back to having a hobby for a while until I got motivated enough to do the next effort. I find that setting aside the time is a nice distraction as well because it's very easy to get stuck into the pattern of doing the same thing or working on the same thing all day, every day and letting it bleed into other parts of your life, and which ultimately is probably not good for you. So... I think that just making sure that there's a a set commitment that I have that is kind of external to work in any way, shape, or form, I find that that's helpful. I agree. I fully agree. I think of this podcast a little bit like that. Like, you know, every week, no matter how bad things were, how hard they were, how stressed I was, you and I had this one hour blocked off to sit and talk about this stuff. And and that's something that we've done for a long time. And it, it did even though it's talking about work, in essence, it did help the days, I think, have have some variety to them. So Doug has another question. He says, Rob, you say wanting financial freedom was motivating. Is that another way of saying I hated my day job? How far can not liking the cubicle and office get you in a startup journey? A comfortable paycheck is the enemy of great startup ideas. I am proof of that. That's an interesting question. I mean, in all honesty, I hear this from people time to time and they're kind of like, well, my day job's good enough. You know, I'm kind of motivated to do it. It sounds like fun to do a startup. Like in my opinion, if you're not all in on it, you're, you're just not going to put in the time to do it. And 
if it really is a major pain point, like for me, yes, I hated my day job and I hated all of the day jobs I did. You know, I, I hate's a strong word, but like I was never happy for very long. So maybe it was 12 to 18 months. And then it was like, no, I have to move on to the next thing. And the further I got along, not only, you know, would I kind of burn out on a job within let's say 12 to 24 months, but I also realized I wanted to make more money you know, then I could pay, weren't as a salaried uh, or even a contractor. I wanted mobility. I wanted to be able to travel and not have to worry about being in one place or living in the same city or being concerned that I was going to get laid off. So I wanted kind of the confidence that I was in control of my own destiny. And frankly, I, I did want more control of my time. I hated having to be in an office at 830 or, you know, needing to be available during these hours. I just wanted that. So I, especially as I got older, you know, and got into my early 30s, I realized this was this was not going to work for me. And it was a real, like a true pain point in my life. And I was willing to like put it all on the table, right? I mean, I was willing to sacrifice nights and weekends for years to do this. If that's not you and you don't have the burning desire, that's okay. Like I have some good friends who I envy because they've been happy. Me and uh, a really good friend of mine in Sacramento started a day job the same day uh, or the same week in back in 2000, he still works at that company. It's like 18 years later, he's, you know, he's a, he's a developer and he works at a consulting firm. And I've had like 20 jobs since then, you know, I bounced, bounced to different jobs, different products. If you count it all, I mean, maybe even more than that. And we're just cut from a different cloth. I would be so hope, hopelessly unhappy and depressed if I had his life. But I don't judge him and say, oh, you could, you could do better if you'd done startups because I don't think he really had the desire, you know, and I don't know if his personality's cut out for it. He really didn't want the stress. He didn't want to put things, he's just more conventional than I am. So we each have different priorities and we have different personalities. And I think you really have to look in the mirror and ask yourself, am I willing to do what it takes? Because this startup stuff is not easy. I hope that's something we've communicated in the past 405 episodes, both through uh, just talking about stuff theoretically and also the agony of episodes like moving on from Audit Shark and the agony of some of the, the stuff I've talked about here. So all right. I bet that was a good rant for me. What do you think, Mike? You have, you have other thoughts? The summary of what you just said is, is like, it's a personal decision for each person. And I mean, I, I can relate like to, to your friend out of, I think you said Seattle. Like I, I was up in Rochester, I don't know, it was like within the past couple of years. And there, one of the reasons I had left Wegmans was there was a guy who had recently got promoted to a position that I had wanted. Not that I was going to get promoted to it. It's just that it was one that I aspired to. And he got promoted to it after like being at the company for eight years or 18 years. And I was like, I'm not waiting 18 years to get promoted to that level. So I ran into him a couple of years ago and he's still there working at the same company that he's been at for 30 years. So like that would not have worked for me. It's just, I don't have the personality to have, to have been working in that business for that long and not transition around. Now I'm sure that he works on different things, but it just would not be a good fit for me. Thanks for the questions, Doug. I uh, enjoyed him so much. I didn't answer him on the blog and wanted to kind of talk about him on the show. And our final listener question for the day is from Ricardo Feliciano. And he says, hey, Mike and Rob, I love the podcast. I find it very valuable. My question is, what is the best way to charge for an online and real life community? The two best examples I've seen are Founder Cafe from the two of you and Nomad List, nomadlist.com. I asked because I'm starting a community for Marvel and DC fans called Comics and Coffee. And that's Comics N, the letter N, coffee.com. And I don't know if I should paywall it or try to monetize it through merchandise, perhaps through a premium program such as what Reddit does with Reddit Gold or Discord with Nitro. 
Thanks for your time. And he says, P.S. for comics and coffee background, we started with a podcast and are adding a forum and in-person meetups for movie nights soon. What do you think? I think if you're going to have a community, there has to be some compelling reason for people to join and stick with their membership is really what it comes down to. So when you look at something like Nomad List, that's aimed at people who are traveling around the world and they're probably constantly traveling. So they're like more likely to become and remain a member for longer periods of time because even though they may be in Thailand for three months or six months or even a year or two, then they go over to Belarus or Spain or Africa or wherever. And then they're going to need to be able to connect with other people, either locally or online or potentially both. So that's one of those communities where it's an ongoing thing that they don't just need the, the service once versus something like trying to meet up with other people locally and those people are not moving around like everybody lives in the same community like for example i live here in massachusetts and if i wanted to get together with people and wanted to form a group or an organization or something like that i might use meetup.com for for that the benefit of that is finding other people but if you've already got like an established location and group of people that are coming, chances are good that they associate with other people outside of that who are also involved in comics. So they're going to invite their friends. Now, the advantage of your platform or your community is that the, you are going to be able to attract more people to it. And that's kind of the value proposition you have, which is, hey, find other people and stick with a, a local community. The problem is that once they have found your community and are coming to whatever meetings there are on a regular basis or semi-regular basis, like what additional value are you offering? And I'm not clear on what that would be. With Founder Cafe, it's a little different because that is like everybody's remote. So because it's all remote, like if you join the community and then you leave, you no longer have access to it versus if it's a local in-person meetup and there's a regular meeting every Tuesday at seven o'clock, Everybody comes at seven. And once you've found it, you kind of no longer need the platform anymore. So what value is it that you offer? And I think that that's what you need to focus in on in terms of trying to figure out how to monetize it. You know, you might be able to pay wallet and have some sort of merchandise behind it. I'm not sure how that would go, though. I don't I don't know as charging on an ongoing basis for it would be terribly lucrative, I'll say. Yeah, I mean, you know, B2B is easier than B2C. In, in this case, right, it's like Founder Cafe or the Dynamite Circle or Nomad List. Um, they are tend to surround people who are run businesses, who are making money from something, who the network they know can help them make more money, help them have a more successful business. Whereas going to, to gamers, I mean, gamers are notoriously cheap, right? They'll they'll spend money on, on games, but trying to ask someone to do, a, a consumer to do a subscription tends to be a harder thing to do. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't do it, but know that when I think about the, the $99 every quarter that we charge for Founder Cafe, most business owners see that and think, yeah, that's not very much money compared to what I'm paying for all of the other services I'm using. But if you were to try to charge that in, in your case, it would be very, very hard. I mean, basically no one would sign up. I bet people would be like, are you kidding me? $33 a month to, you know, to have access to this list. I mean, you're going to be more down in the, I'll say the Netflix zone, you know, where you're probably looking at five to $10 a month, I would think. And I would probably either charge it quarterly or charge it annually. And because it's such a small dollar amount, you don't want to have these $5 charges all over the place. So maybe it's like, you know, 50 bucks a year, 80 bucks a year, 100 bucks a year, somewhere in that range is, is what I initially think about. I 
don't think it's a bad experiment. I mean, depending on how many people you already have on the list, it's easier. You know, merch is fun, but merch is going to take time. The margins are, are low and you really need a lot, a lot of people on your list in order to sell enough merch to get any type of revenue. And then you're only getting, you know, what's the net margin on, on merch? Is it 10, 20%? I mean, it's going to be very small. So I think that could be an interesting revenue stream to explore, but I would do that later. Um, having a premium membership, I think could... Could be very interesting, you know. Um, you could also consider doing a, pa- a Patreon, but you know, again, you need quite a few people to do that. But then it's, then you can have that insiders group pretty easily, and all the mechanics are, are handled for it. And people already know, you know, it's becoming pretty popular to hear this this word Patreon, and to know what that means. And so it's not like you're trying to set and reinvent the wheel and introduce everybody to yeah, this premium membership, blah blah blah. It's just like go to your Patreon account. You already. Su- potentially support some other podcaster creators, support it. And if you support it at the $5 a month level, and then Patreon handles all that for you, you know, all the billing and all that, then then you get this extra perk of getting this login or getting this episode early or getting these episodes that are only published on the on the Patreon feed. So those are my initial thoughts on it. Um, I love the idea. Of course, I'd love to do something like this, but it is going to be, I think it's going to be hard to build a viable business out of it unless you have, you're going to need a lot of people listening to you. I mean, that's B2C is a volume play, right? You need a lot more people when you're selling something for five bucks a month versus uh, 50 or a hundred dollars a month. The other thing that occurs to me is something like this seems similar to, there's a website called Roll D20, which is mainly aimed at role-playing games, but uh, obviously like there's a lot of Dungeons and Dragons players on there, but playing various editions and Pathfinder and various other role-playing games. And they have a, a mechanism where they're charging, I think it's either $5 or $10 a month, and it's an annual fee. So I agree with Rob that I think that going the annual route is probably the best way to go to get like some of that initial revenue. And then down the road, you could look at that and say, okay, well, now that I've got 500 or 1,000 or 10,000 people who have paid that much money, again, even with 1,000 people paying $50 for a year, that's that's $50,000. It's not enough to support one person for the most part full time. So one thing you could do is go uh, start offering like an escrow service for people who want to buy or sell comic books. So yes, you can do it on eBay, but then you have to deal with PayPal and all this other stuff for higher end. And Rob, maybe you could speak to this because I know you're into comic books, but like, would you pay for an escrow service for something like a high value comic book? Because we talked about in episode 403 about the types of like analyzing another type of business. But I think part of that is looking at the type of customer that you want and people who are buying and selling extremely valuable comic books, they want to make sure that the, what they're getting is good quality and that they're actually going to get it and not going to get ripped off. So by offering an escrow service, like as an, as an add-on later on, that might be an option. Yeah. I think that could get traction. I don't know if that exists today, to be honest, I guess. I wish there was a, you know, a text box we could type search terms into and it could potentially tell us if that exists today i know that'd be uh, fantastic be crazy yeah <laughs> anyways enough dream enough daydreaming but yeah no i think that's a good point right you could, you could you know again then you have to build you do have to build a large enough community that the small percentage you know who use whatever service offshoot uh making enough money to be viable but i do think that's a kind of a cool thought experiment or an interesting interesting way to to think about it it's a creative way to think about it i'll say that I, I think adding offshoot businesses rather than just charging directly is is another way you could potentially monetize it. So thanks for the question, Ricardo. I think that about wraps us up for the day. If you have a question for us, you can call it into our voicemail number at 1-888-801-9690, or you can email it to us at questions at startupsforrestofus.com. 
Our theme music is an excerpt from We're Out of Control by Moot used under Creative Commons. Subscribe to us in iTunes by searching for startups and visit startupsforrestofus.com for full transcript of each episode. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.